Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Legal Brief. I'm Misty Maris. I'm joined by my executive producer, Lauren Mincer-Clark. Hi, guys. And today was such a big day. Big, big day. This mm-hmm. was, I mean, all day. Uh, we've been watching and waiting for the verdict in the Michael Avenatti a case to come down. I mean, the yes. jury deliberated for a lot longer than I had originally predicted. So I was going to ask you about that, what you thought on the timeline of this, because this is a big deal. And you've been watching this for every second of it and covering every second of this. So it's very interested uh, on the timeline aspect of that. Yeah, I actually thought the jury would come back much quicker. Uh, I thought that the case was pretty clear the prosecution did a good job of setting forth their case and we can get into some of the facts and some of the evidence that came out during the course of the trial so when the jury continued to deliberate for so long at 15 hours i think it was in total somewhere around there Mm -hmm. i was really surprised and then today while we were all waiting for the verdict to come down there was a note uh, from the jurors who said that they could not, the foreman said that they could not agree on count one, which is the the main, you know, uh, the more the more uh, severe charge in this case, which is wire fraud. And he said that one juror refused to pay attention to the mm-hmm. evidence and was making a decision based only on emotion, and they couldn't come to a consensus. So <gasps> that was a really weird twist. In the that, case that doesn't I, that you do not hear very often. Let's point yeah. that out. I don't. No. I haven't heard something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, just I saying, like they're not listening to reason. <laughs> it was very strange. So, so, wow. and, and everybody was a little bit surprised by it as we were covering. You know, you're always waiting for the notes from the jurors because you want to know what they're looking at. And previously, they had wanted to hear Stormy Daniels' testimony, and they wanted to see some other documentary evidence. And so, in the course of their deliberations. They had reviewed evidence that came out during the course of the trial, uh, but when that when that came up and and the the jury four person was asking for guidance from the court, you know, what do we do under these circumstances? Because our understanding from the jury instructions is exactly what we know it to be, Lauren. That right, that the determination has to be made upon the evidence in the courtroom, and while right. you can bring your own common sense and life experience mm-hmm. into that jury room, ultimately your job as a juror is to apply the evidence to make determinations about what evidence you find credible, and then decide whether or not that evidence fulfills the uh, elements of of the charges that that the the per, the person is facing so it was it was a weird thing so the judge did well basically it, it was like a very watered down allen charge and an allen charge is when a judge tells the jury okay if you can't come to a consensus your job as a jury is to do everything that you can to get to that consensus so go back in there and keep trying that's that's essentially essentially what it, mm, allen got it and then right. not too long after they came back with did remind them of their uh, obligation as jurors to make determinations Mm -hmm. based on the evidence. So that's what was going on today in court. So watching this case unfold and waiting because we're in federal court here. So we don't have cameras. So we're all waiting for the pool reporters (laughs) who are in the courtroom to give us the information. And we all knew there was a question. So everybody was kind of on pins and needles all day. And then ultimately, 
the verdict came out. In fact, I'm covering this case uh, tomorrow. We're going through it. And when I was I, I was on a production call earlier today and and the ver- the if the verdict is out, but we didn't know what it was yet. It hadn't been read, and we were talking about, oh my gosh, what if what's what if not guilty? What's, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? Yep, because there was because yeah. when we got the alerts, uh, it, we got there was a little bit of downtime before it was what it is. It's very hard when you have these federal cases and you're not actually in there to be able to kind of watch it and just wait for the word. Exactly. So it's a little bit different. So anyway, <laughs> but just to take a step back, so with the Avenatti case. I think everybody knows that name to a certain extent, but just to review about what what this particular case is about, because keep in mind, he's had three trials in the yes. past two uh, years. Okay? Yes, so, to be very honest, it's, it's a little bit and all. Yeah, at the same time. Yeah. Yes. So right now he's currently convicted in uh, the Nike extortion case. And that, that case was the, at a federal court in California. That's where he was convicted of attempting to extort Nike for $25 million. Correct. Um, yeah. So that case, he was convicted in that case. He has a two and a half year sentence in that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also was tried in another case, which resulted in a mistrial based on uh, some issues that went on during the course of that trial. But it was a, uh, a similar a similar factual scenario to this and and he's still facing a trial on those charges which basically very similarly to the stormy daniels case here he was accused of confiscating funds from his clients that that were not rightfully his uh you know a little mm-hmm. tom girardi <laughs> yes situation here so yes that, that that he was taking funds that should have been paid to plaintiffs mm-hmm. in cases where he represented the plaintiff and he did not pay those plaintiffs. Instead, he was taking the money to fund his lifestyle, to pay debts, to pay other plaintiffs that he had formerly represented. So he was kind of moving money around. He has not been yeah. convicted in that case yet. That case resulted in a mistrial. He still faces those charges. And now to this case, which is uh, which just concluded today, this one was a sight to be seen in the courtroom. And again, I would have right. loved to have actually been uh, able to be there. Imagine and, and being to watch in there. It on TV. Oh, yeah, my goodness. Really watch it. But it was a there was a lot that came out of this case. So just to take a step back, Michael Avenatti, he's an attorney and he really skyrocketed. I mean, you couldn't turn the TV on <laughs> without seeing him nope. for a really good amount of time. He was he, he just was all over the place when he began to represent. Uh, adult film actress Stormy Daniels in uh, with respect to a settlement agreement that she entered into with then president Donald Trump. So mm-hmm. back then this was, it, she had accepted $130,000 in exchange for a non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, this was back due to a sexual encounter that she allegedly had with Trump in 2008. And at the time, Avenatti was representing Stormy Daniels as she was contesting that non-disclosure. So basically, she was saying that the non-disclosure agreement that she entered into in relation to this, whatever the relationship was she had with Trump, mm-hmm. he denies it. She says it happened. Uh, mm-hmm. that That she could actually disclose that and go public with the relationship that they had and and that she was not subject to that non-disclosure agreement. So that's what Michael Avenatti was representing her. That was what his Mm -hmm. job was at the time was to 
to try and undo that provision of the contract that she had entered into. So that that aside, that's that's one issue. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's how and that's how we came into the media. Yeah, I, that, yeah exactly. Media yes, yes he, huge. He brought him. He you know he was thrust into the limelight. He was on TV all the time, all the time. Yeah, notoriously interviews everywhere. Yep, <laughs> interviews everywhere, and very very critical of then President Donald Trump. Always going after him. Always needling him. You know they were kind of like antagonizing each other on social. Oh media. yeah, so, social media. Whew. So a lot was going on then. Um, and, and fast forward. So every nobody really knew that there were any issues. And then all of these allegations against Avenatti relating to the way he was handling client funds began to come out. And Stormy Daniels, this was the most uh, media media centric case because right. she had already she's a big name. Right. So. Right. This case was about. Uh, the allegation is that Avenatti stole from Stormy Daniels uh, and he took $300,000 from her, siphoning payments from a book deal advance that mm-hmm. she had. So she wrote a book and she wrote a book about uh, about her tryst, uh, her yep. alleged tryst with Donald Trump. And her book, she got an advance of $800,000. And the allegation is that he illegally took $300,000 of that from her. So mm-hmm. this that's the crux of this case, and that's what he was found guilty of today. So there are two charges. One is wire right. fraud. Um, and mm-hmm. the reason that it's... Wire fraud is because that's money that had been transmitted, you know, through through banks or whatever that was right. legally in his possession. So that's wire fraud. That is up to 20 years in prison. So that's what he's facing now. And then the other is um, aggravated identity theft. Uh, and that's another two, a minimum two years in prison. So he's facing 22 years uh, when, when he is sentenced in this case. But the prosecution's theory of the case was, and what the jury ultimately bought, that he had taken this $300,000 by faking Stormy Daniels' signature on documents <laughs> saying that she agreed for the funds relating to her book deal to be sent directly to him. To him. Oh. Yes. So he, his defense was that there was a clause in his retainer agreement. And a retainer agreement is the agreement between an attorney and a client. Mm-hmm. And it spells out everything relating to the client relationship. So it's, it's a pretty detailed document because of issues like this. Right. He wanted to be very clear about what your what you're retained for okay so you're t- retained for this case right not right you just for this particular case and the client owes you this amount of money this is how it's calculated so it's a very very specific document and there's a very um i would say vague clause in the contract that said something to the effect that he could be uh that the part of his payment could he could he could ultimately be entitled to uh, money from her media appearances or or her book deal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, it didn't specify a percentage, it didn't specify any uh hard numbers, nothing like that. But he was very reliant on that clause as, okay. as being part of the agreement and his argument was that part of his fees and for the work he was doing was to come out of that amount of money that Stormy Daniels was getting for her book. 
Now, all of that sounds okay, right? Right. Uh, all right. Right. That, all right. Certainly could sounds be. like a and basic-ish. Was, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a contractual provision that would allow for it if agreed upon between right. the parties. Right. And so if there had been follow-up documentation that said, okay, you know, I in 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 order to satisfy my fees for your work on this case or that case, whatever it is, you can take 10%, 20%, whatever. Mm-hmm. You're entitled to this amount from the book. All right. Not a bad argument and and may have been certainly enough to raise reasonable doubt, but that's not what came out in the courtroom. Lord. That's <laughs> not what came out at all. And it's it's the classic version of it's not the crime. It's the cover up. Ah, right. Because what what ended up mm-hmm. going in front of the jury was just a whole host of messages between Avenatti and Stormy Daniels, where Stormy Daniels is saying, the publisher hasn't paid me. Where's the money? They she, they haven't paid me. We should be suing them. I never got my money from the publisher. Same time, you have Avenatti forging a signature. Right. That the money goes directly to him. And his response to her inquiries about the money was basically just to punt it, put it off. Oh, I'm following yeah. up. Oh, I'll call them. Oh, we'll see what happens. You know, oh, yeah, uh-huh. you know, they said it's on the way. So, again, it's once well, those messages came out, once I had seen that part ooh. of the prosecution's case, mm-hmm. I thought, I don't know, uh. what is he possibly going to present? And, and, again, defendants don't have to present any evidence. And, in fact, he did not. True. Yep. He did not. He didn't <laughs> present. He didn't testify. And he did not present. He didn't call any witnesses. He didn't anything. Anything. Nope. So okay. he didn't. He didn't put on a case. He relied on the prosecution's failure to fulfill mm. their burden, which is not a terrible defense tactic. And uh, it's a defense tactic that lawyers Been done. all the time. It's yeah, of course. Um, but those messages, to me, I thought, how the heck do you get over this hurdle? Because if you did, in <clears throat> fact, according to this provision, agree that. If, if she agreed that he was entitled to some portion of that money for his fees, then why wouldn't you just say the money came in, you know, X amount is going to go. X and amount, I get you know, we'll, we'll send you this yeah. from the escrow account. And as per our agreement, I right. will take this. I'll amount. get this amount. Very yeah. simple. It would be a very simple conversation. And it's not it's you know, it's a long time frame where she's actually saying she thinks she's getting stiffed by the publishing company right and, and she, she wants to sue them she wants to sue the publishing company for for the for their failure right of course of course and, and meanwhile he knows all of this and Me, he's be- sending these messages so Ooh, i was like this is right. a tremendous Ooh. tremendous case for him to ever overcome given those messages <laughs> which leads me to the comment that we made opening the the show today uh i really didn't get why it took the jury so long to make a determination because, again, I'm a, I wasn't in the courtroom and I didn't right. have the benefit of watching this on TV. Uh, we had to just hear what was going on right. as it was happening from the reporters in the courtroom. But I thought that is such evidence, uh, that contemporaneous <sighs> evidence of how he's handling these things yeah. from her. And I thought, uh, I don't really know how you're going to get past that. But. Right. Absolutely. And we always talk about, and we've talked about this on so many episodes that we always want to get inside that jury's head because it is so fascinating. It is the key to everything in every trial that we cover is you just want to get inside their heads. And sometimes you can glean a little bit when they ask the questions that they're asking, but did I, but those questions you said, you know, they were a little bit 
interesting. Yeah, well, so another twist in this case, which was not as surprising as it would normally be, because Avenatti actually did this in in one of the other two cases that we had just spoken about that are separate Mm -hmm. trials. So after day one, Avenatti decided he was going to represent himself. Mm -hmm. So he took on the cross-examination of Stormy Daniels. In reality, that cross-examination was the most important part of this case for the defense. I'm not saying it played out that way. I'm saying from a defense point of view, she's the witness. She's the one, right? So she is the one who's saying that he stole this money from her and that they did not have this agreement. So she is the key and critical witness in this case. She testified for the prosecution. Obviously, she's the person who's aggrieved, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the cross-examination, that was a really important thing for the defense to raise reasonable doubt. Now, Avenatti took over at that point and did the cross-examination. And look, there is the old adage, you hear it all the time, the attorney who represents himself has a fool for a client. <laughs> you know, no matter how skilled of a litigator, no matter how skilled of a lawyer right. you are, uh, it, is, it is incredibly difficult to represent yourself, especially in a case uh, where there's emotion involved and yes. you've been accused of something that you faced 20 years in prison. Oh my gosh, of course. Yeah, it's it's. How can you ask questions and think straight when that is all, you know, on the line? Right. That's a feat that no one could really kind of take on. No. It's crazy. It's <gasps> not advisable. And in yeah. fact, whenever somebody wants to represent themselves, the court goes through a whole inquiry. Are you sure you understand yeah. that? Now, when mm-hmm. you're talking about Avenatti, he is a lawyer. Right, of course. He's been practicing for many, many, many years and uh, in theory, had you know had success in yes. the way. So, uh, of course, he, he's if anybody is gonna if the court's gonna say yes. we're comfortable with this proceeding. And look at that, if somebody people can do that. It's okay. The court just goes through a whole right questioning of make to to ensure that the person truly understands the import of that and truly understands the potential impact of that before they move forward. As the, as representing themselves now, Avenatti as an attorney, he's got the best shot of okay, like understanding it. Of course, to be a lawyer, yeah, he knows the rest of it. He he understands that side. He gets it because right. he's advised clients to probably you yeah, know he's not. <laughs> he's, he's been to trial before. He's yeah examinations. So he uh, he cross examined Stormy Daniels, and he really went for credibility. So. Mm. It was much less, uh, gosh, how do I say it? It was much less really attacking the factual allegations. I was just going to say the facts versus the person. Yeah. So, he, you know, there were all those messages Mm. between them that uh, really were incredibly problematic for his case, right? Right. Where she's asking where the money is and he's kind of punting the question and just evading evading right. evading evading meanwhile her name is on a document right meanwhile her yeah. name is on a document that's for a, a letter right. that he wrote Ooh. that she never <laughs> authorized telling the publisher you know that that she uh consented to him receiving the money and at the same time she's saying where's the money so none of that makes sense right there, there's right. no explanation other than the most simple which is what the jury ultimately concluded that <laughs> he <laughs> took the money and yes. he, he didn't think he 
guilty. He knew <laughs> right. that, that he was going to take it because otherwise he could have very easily addressed it. But so uh, I guess when the facts really aren't necessarily on your side, you go for credibility. And, and yep. look, that's that's a strategy. Certainly. It happens, you know, of course, that we see all the time. It happens all the time. Yep. Um, so he went for credibility and he, he talked about how she had some beliefs in the paranormal. She He talked mm. about... Um, a, a documentary style show called Spooky Babes, where she believed she could communicate with the dead and that she had conversations with a doll named Susan that was featured on the program. So he kind of went after her in this way uh, that was just kind of like, oh, she's kind of kooky, you know? Right. Well, which is very confusing to me. And, I, and I'm interested in your opinion because... Uh, but it, but the, it doesn't matter even if she does believe in that or aliens or whatever she believes in. It doesn't change the fact of how much she owes or doesn't owe and the, his lying, right? Like, Funny you say oh, that, I, Lauren. That was exactly <laughs> what the prosecutor said in their closing. <laughs> said, okay, so if she well, believes in ghosts or she, she does or does not believe in ghosts or the paranormal or has beliefs that that aren't so mainstream right whatever it is it doesn't matter if he stole from her he stole from her, <laughs> right. I mean, stole that, from her. Really, that was it so nice, I'm not nice in. try trying to dangle something else shiny over here but still right. if that's the money's gone closing, he said mm. oh is this the kind of person you know he was trying uh, to right. is this the kind of person that you're going to believe there's definitely reasonable doubt so that's that was really his strategy more mm. effectively some uh text messages that were exchanged between the two of them after she discovered. So at some point she discovers that he's been lying. There's something. Yeah. Right. And right. so she gets angry and she starts texting him some, I'll call them crude type messages mm-hmm. about him going to prison and him being behind bars and him, you know, being, being a terrible person. And she yeah. has a line of some, um, some lubricants and perhaps he should get some for when he goes takes a shower and it's three hundred thousand dollars three hundred thousand dollars is missing from me you're gonna get some outraged text messages i mean that's and that's that's her her line i mean so so he so he goes after those and that's a little bit more of an effective defense strategy because at the very least, he can say, look, she's she was mad at me. He went back to she was angry at me because uh, the, the case uh, with respect to that non-disclosure agreement was a huge failure, huge flop. OK, mm-hmm. so she went on. Mm-hmm. They went on this media tour and said they were going to overturn this agreement. Well, they they didn't. So he kind of couched it as she was mad at me because the case didn't come out as she thought it would I thought you know, it would don't okay. guarantee yeah. as lawyers you you never guarantee you can't of course you, you can't guarantee yeah. Yeah. that everything's going to go your way Six, it, it yeah way. so all you can say is here's the two paths and here's the ups and downs here's the here's the likelihood of success here's the likelihood of failure yeah by the way there things go a million different ways so just be aware okay yes. of all these different aspects of the case and and what could happen and here's all the different outcomes so he couched it as she was angry about all of that um, and, and that she was unhappy with him. And so he used these messages to say that she was really out to get him. So, you know, look, I think that was actually a more effective strategy than yeah. impugning her on some, you know, her a, beliefs. A, a show that yeah. Was, yeah. Or like her beliefs in the parent, whatever it was, whatever. But um, the timing of that. So the prosecutors did a really good idea of. Uh, 
really did a really good job of really going through that timeline and the evolution of those messages and matching up all of those communications, mm. both with respect to the money that she was like, Where, where's the money from the publisher? And and then the, the messages that related to some of those, that crude commentary, mm. mm-hmm. um, that it, it, when that happens, there's, there's a triggering event and it's her realizing that he's been siphoning this money, the money realizing yeah. what he did. So um, right. I think that that's why that, that, you know, that, that timeline was very effective by the prosecution. The prosecutor mm-hmm. made the exact same point that you did, Lord, maybe you should have tried this case. because <laughs> said, you know, like, I don't know. Okay. What's your point, sir? Is kind of all that I, I, I don't know. Can you professionally as a lawyer just go, what's your point? I guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's kind of the, I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, look, I mean, but yeah, Avenatti in his closing. So he he had asked for two hours for his close closing. And look, his summation was really. He talked about Stormy. He talked about her credibility. That was that was his strategy. That was the case for him. Right. And look, you know, right. quite frankly, hey. her testimony was something that the jury asked to see. Uh, right. So perhaps at least there was something. Was yes, something. So that's yeah, something. Yeah, I was thinking when they asked for that because oh, maybe maybe the cross maybe I was judgmental. Ma- yeah, maybe it was a bit more effective than than I had thought because again we're not in the courtroom watching it. Of all course, the, day, so the jury might have a different impression. Um, but in its summation, he did the credibility thing like we were talking about, which was appropriate to do. And look, that's the crux of his case. So fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the other part, yeah, he really started to launch into these anecdotes and for instance he started when my father was a teenager he sold hot dogs at a ballpark <laughs> and the uh, prosecutors objected and he, that that stopped because nobody knew what he was talking you know it was what yeah yeah <laughs> and I yeah think this is all just trying to be relatable of course the okay. very end of his um summation he says you know i'm italian i like italian food and ladies and gentlemen, the case that the government is attempting to feed you has a giant oh. cockroach in the middle of the plate. Would you eat that or would you send it back? So I'm that not information. So I and look, I'm not I everybody does things differently. Yes. Nobody very has, th- theatrical you know, perfect way of doing it. Everybody's yeah. got a different way of different course. approach. And perhaps this was just trying to be relatable. But I didn't get it. Let me just put yeah. it. I just didn't get it. I didn't, yeah. I didn't get how it related uh, back. Um, it sounds I, like not everyone else agreed to. Yeah. 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 So anyway, convicted. But, um, yep. Next step will be sentencing. And he there'll be a, there'll be a separate sentencing uh, phase of the case. The judge in federal court decides the sentence. Uh, it's 20 years for the wire fraud and then two years on the aggravated uh Identity theft. The aggravated identity theft is pretty clear. Um, it's a two-year. A two-year. You said okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, the other is definitely a sliding scale. I would right. say that in the grand scheme of fraud cases, as crazy as this sounds, because three hundred thousand dollars is a whole lot of money. Right. But in the grand scheme of fraud cases, one of the aspects the court's going to look at is the impact, the financials. You know what? How? What? Mm. What is this case about? You know, you've got. Um, 
and another, you know, talking about other cases that we're covering, you've got like a Jen Shaw type situation, you got a Tom Girardi type situation, real, millions and millions of dollars. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and, so that and makes sense. I understand. Yeah. I want to make sure we, right. Jen Shaw is charged criminally, Tom Girardi's not. But the allegations between Girardi and Avenatti are very, very similar. It's just misappropriation of client funds, basically. Right. Um, and so, you know, the, that's all the financial implications of some of those and some widespread fraud schemes that you see very, very high um, in the college admission scandal, for instance, mm-hmm. one of the arguments that, that that most of the defendants raised is that there wasn't really a tangible monetary loss to anyone. Right. There wasn't. Uh, right. There right. Wasn't, even though it's yes, it's uh, I remember fraud, that. Yes. There's not this tangible monetary loss like there are in other similar fraud cases. Why are you know, this this is the same type of statute. So um, three hundred thousand dollars in the grand scheme, not a whole heck of a lot of money. But there's a factor here that is so important and that I could see um, the judge taking into consideration and I could really see it adding to a, um, you know, I don't see a minimum sentence here. I see something a little bit more aggravated. It would be an aggravating factor. And that's this relationship of trust Mm -hmm. that you have between attorney and client. And, you know, how sacred that is. It is sacred. And quite frankly, Stormy Daniels has a platform because she's in the public eye, um, Mm -hmm. celebrity lawyers work with some of the most vulnerable people, people who, and especially when you work in, in, you know, he was doing civil type cases. He was doing cases where people were injured, cases where, uh, you know, people have suffered catastrophic injuries. People have, have lost money. People have been defraud. He, he, you know, he's, he's putting himself out there as somebody who is going to represent their interests and is on their side. This ethical obligation to do right by them and when you're found guilty of taking funds from your client in a way where not only are you you know evading these where's my payment where's my payment yeah not only that you you you're found guilty of actually forging that signature forging that letter i could see this i I don't think it's going to be 20 years but i could see this being higher than a, another a sentence with with these same types of financial right. and circumstances I, because that relationship of trust is definitely going to be a key component in the sentencing in this case well, and then and and so let me ask you and let's go back to because the case where he was convicted the the nike one where he said and we'll talk about he was sentenced to two and a half years so regardless so will that how is that all going to work? Is it all just going to stack up, basically? It's going to stack up because okay. these are different cases right. ri- arising out of different factual scenarios. So the way that sentences work is that they can either be run consecutive or concurrent. Mm-hmm. And when they're run concurrent, that means that they're at the same time. And ultimately, I will say it's up to a judge to make these determinations. Okay. But yeah. in general, when you're talking about the same set of facts and circumstances, but you're, tra- you you know, you've maybe been convicted, maybe in state court and also mm. in federal court, those mm. will generally run concurrently, meaning they'll run at the same time. But right. When you have these different cases mm-hmm. and different jurisdictions that relate to completely different factual scenarios, it's more of like a priority thing. So he was convicted in California. He'll serve that two and a half years. He's convicted here that'll be next 
Got right. It. And then right. you've got the other. And then have the other trial. Yeah. Be next. So is there an opportunity for those to potentially run concurrently because a judge makes that determination? Sure. It would be unlikely. It's more likely that these would be run consecutively because they're, you know, they're not even different, different charges and different jurisdictions relating to the same facts or the same victim. They're completely different. Completely separate cases, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So that makes sense. Yeah. So that's what oh, I interesting. Would, that's what I wow. So we'll, see what he's, we'll see what he faces in this case. I mean, yeah. like I said, I just think that there's a really strong argument for aggravating factors. Here makes sense. Absolutely. Well, and I would assume that that's something that you take very serious and that you also want someone to be held accountable for because that that's this is your field. This is what, you know, one of you, you got out there as a lawyer, you know, that's a a lawyer taking funds from a client. It's probably the worst thing that you could do. Yeah. I, I, Honestly, it's, it's, it is such a breach of that uh, attorney-client relationship, and it is such a gross ethical violation. And, I mean, look, in this case, it's not just an ethical violation. Ethics went out the door a long time ago. Right. I mean, you, you lose your license, yeah. Uh, right. 100%. But now you're talking about not only unethical behavior, you're talking about criminal behavior. And in this case, it just became, and probably maybe that's why I, maybe I had bias in my heart. I shouldn't have been yeah. on this jury. I'll tell you that right now, because <laughs> to me, that, that attorney client relationship is so sacred. And, and yes. just because your clients rely so much upon you and your job is to ensure oh. that you're giving them the best advice and that you're giving doing everything you can in your power to zealously advocate. Of course. They, that's why they have you because they don't know. And that, that's you're being paid because we don't know as a regular person. And when we hire an attorney, yeah. we don't know better. And so you trust every single thing that they say and suggest and at all, especially when it comes to siphoning the client funds. Ugh. That's so egregious because if you do tell, and again, Stormy Daniels has a, has a platform, so so that's, right. a, that's a good thing because mm-hmm. she drew a lot of attention to this issue, and then the scrutiny was on, and then it's like, oh wow, other people come out of the woodwork. So yeah, right. She has this ability to to be in the public eye. You know how many people there are who have had terrible things happen to them and seek legal counsel mm-hmm. uh, because they're aggrieved and the they completely rely on their lawyer because they just really aren't familiar with the litigation yes. process. Litigation is very complicated and very complicated. Of course. A lot of it, a, a lot of it that is ethical and, and legal doesn't make sense to, to <laughs> somebody who's not a part of that. Yeah, of course. Somebody do it every day. So, I, I mean, I... As I watch this trial unfold and as you hear the allegations and just reading those messages, I just had that thought of, mm, I, you're not going to convince me that yeah. this was some sort of miscommunication. Nope. And again, <laughs> right. that's why I shouldn't have. I was not just full disclosure. I was not impaneled for this jury. I, never, I was never <laughs> right. for jury duty, but it's good that I wasn't because but I, it was good. I could have been. No, I, yep. I would have been biased in a case yeah. about a lawyer and these types of allegations. Of course, so, um, yeah, that, that's why I was surprised that they, they, they that they it took so long. Even about, yeah, that they were grappling with it for so long because it seemed pretty clear. But you know what? I, in any case, that's what a jury should do. A jury. I, should I was really just gonna say, yeah. It's complicated. It, 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 it makes you, I don't know, feel a little bit better that they, they it shows they really did put that thought in. They did bring other things. They didn't go out of the room, go, obviously he's guilty. Let's go back out there. Right, guys? Okay. And go back out. They actually went in there. They did pull that testimony, like you said, and go through things. So you do, you know, it makes me feel a little more confident in, yeah. in that process, because which is good. Because even someone accused of the most heinous crimes 
is innocent until proven guilty. And it is the prosecution's burden. So, look, I think this case, I I am not surprised by the result of this case at Mm -hmm. all. Um, And I am interested in seeing what happens in that sentencing hearing. And look, Avenatti's um, vowed to appeal both Uh, of these. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, we obviously know that appeals are probably coming down yeah Pike, right yeah a hundred percent no of appeal, course. appeal and and all of those appeals are based on um you know the there's always a very very fine tooth comb through the record and um most of the arguments and appeals are based on evidentiary issues in the trial this should have come in this shouldn't have come in the judge allowed that in and shouldn't have this was prejudicial so those are all the arguments that will be raised uh on appeal and look, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, because it, it really takes it, we can all talk about really glaring appellate issues. I don't recall seeing a glaring appellate issue mm-hmm. in this case. But again, there's sometimes things come up that we, you know, you don't expect. Look at Ghislaine Maxwell, right? Right. Had, oh, had yeah. Potential jury tampering. So there's. Right. You never know what's going to happen. We, you know, I have not taken that record and I, I probably won't because right. <laughs> it, would, it would be a really big test, but, you know, take that record yeah. and go through it and really identify all the appellate issues like his appellate lawyers will. So um, we'll keep an eye on it, though. But the yep. thing, I don't know if they've announced the date yet. I don't think I haven't have seen it. anything yet, but it'll probably be in the next. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks, months, something like that. So we'll keep an eye on that and keep everybody up to date. We are definitely going to follow. I did also want to do in this episode, I want to get a quick update from you because another trial and case that you've been following wall to wall has been the Ahmad Arbery uh, death. And can you kind of let us know where we are in that? Because there's some new updates there too. Yeah, this is certainly uh, a, a lot has gone on in this case, mm-hmm. actually. So just as a refresher, um, the McMichaels, their father and son, they were convicted in a state court of the murder of Ahmad Arbery. So they were convicted and they were are both serving, Greg and Travis McMichael, they're both serving life sentences without parole in state prison. So they mm-hmm. are not getting out of jail. They have no, uh, no possibility it. of yep. parole. And that's the state level case. So... In addition to the state charges and the charges in that case that they were convicted of a host, a host of charges, but in general, felony murder uh, and and father was convicted of felony murder. Travis McMichael, the son who was the shooter, was convicted mm-hmm. of felony murder and malice murder um, that that's done in state court. They're also facing federal civil rights charges and federal civil rights charges are different. They overlap in the sense that it all arises out of the death of Ahmaud Arbery, but the legal standard for federal civil rights charges, completely different standard. It will be a new trial with new evidence. There'll certainly be some overlap, but in a federal civil rights case, prosecutors have to prove motive. In state court cases and in murder cases like we were just talking about, Motive does not have to be proven. Prosecutors often show motive Mm -hmm. because it's helpful for a jury to understand why somebody might have done something, especially in a murder case. But in a federal case, in in a federal case based on um, violation of civil rights, the prosecutors have to prove that the defendants were motivated by race. So it is a tremendous hurdle. I know it Mm. seems like it's, it, it does, it might not sound as difficult as it is, 
But when you're talking about proving motive beyond a reasonable doubt, it's mm-hmm. it's a very difficult task. In fact, prosecutors don't often bring federal civil rights cases for this very reason, because they're very difficult. So hard. Yeah. So this case had a lot of twists and turns here, though, because when both uh, Travis and Gregory McMichael were convicted and then they were um, they they were facing life without parole. So, you know, they've been sentenced to life without parole. They're not getting out. Again, they're appealing that. So certainly there's the possibility that there's a, there's an issue on appeal, but life without parole sentences, many of us, and I watched that trial. I've watched every minute of it. We were every all minute. You, yeah. And a lot of us opined that it was likely they would be seeking plea deals and that they would plead guilty mm-hmm. in the federal case. They're already serving life uh, in, without parole. And right. so they plead guilty in the federal case. And this was something that Derek Chauvin did. And, and right. many people were surprised. A lot of legal analysts were not surprised because mm-hmm. the federal civil rights case, prosecutors have an interest in ending it because it's a very it's difficult to prove. And the defense has an interest in pleading because they, number one, will, will serve their time in a federal federal prison instead of a state prison. And number mm-hmm. two, they're not going to go through a whole other trial. Right. So there's, right. there's definitely okay. interest on both sides. Right. And, and federal prosecutors take all of that into consideration. Court resources, whether whether or not there's issues with the case. So there's a Makes whole sense. host of things that federal prosecutors take into consideration. So as many of us expected, as we analyzed the uh, Ahmad, death of Ahmad Arbery case, last week, prosecutors said, OK, we have a plea deal with Travis and Gregory McMichael. Both will plead guilty in exchange for 30-year sentences to be served in a federal prison. So, okay, everybody says, great. Well, the victim, Wanda Cooper-Jones, who is Ahmaud Arbery's mother and his Mm -hmm. father, both said, we never agreed to that. And we do not want to accept a plea deal. We are very much against a plea deal. Mm -hmm. We want to see these two go to trial. So there's a hearing relating to these plea agreements And the prosecution gets up and talks about the agreement and and talks about why it's fair and equitable and whatnot. And in this case, the victim's family had the opportunity to speak. They did very passionately about Mm -hmm. why they were against the plea deal. They felt very slighted that the that the prosecutors entered entered into the plea deal and the judge actually rejected it. And that was that's so unusual. So usually when prosecutors are making recommendation, especially federal prosecutors, the judges very rarely second guess it. The mm-hmm. judges very often um, go along with federal prosecutors' recommendations. So it was really surprising. So just a couple of things on that so everybody knows what is taken into consideration because prosecutors do not have to have the approval of the victim's uh, next of kin or families. A family. Or the okay. victims themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, prosecutors, they're not always murder cases, right? So Right, um, right. Prosecutors do not have to have approval by victims. They do have to take what the, what they want into consideration, but ultimately they have discretion right. to enter into okay. these plea agreements. Mm-hmm. And, and very often prosecutors sit down with families and victims and explain that, look, there might be hurdles in this case. Here's the possibility that we're not successful, whatever it may be. Um, but in this case, the allegation by the family is that 
the prosecutors didn't didn't do that that they 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 were against it and they they never said that they were interested in in seeking a plea deal and whatnot so but that's only one factor so prosecutors do not have to have that approval do not have to have them say go ahead and get a plea deal they can still do it anyway um the judge didn't specify why she rejected the plea deal okay but um it appears that the reason is because in general even when a plea deal is entered into the prosecutor makes a recommendation right. about the sentence they mm-hmm. don't say the sentence will be 30 years the judge would still have discretion to sentence uh, the okay defendant. okay so yeah the plea deal was so rigid that it really took away the judge's discretion in i see altogether. okay so okay that and the judge that... alluded to that in, in okay. the statement she said she said well the way that it's written you know, it's the, it, it, she basically talked about the form and the way that it's written. You know, this would be this is a problem. This is a problem right. and yeah. rejected the plea deal. So a lot of people were surprised because it's, it's kind of a technical nuance. Um, you know, part of it was most certainly the impassioned speeches. The other part of it was the form that the judge's discretion was taken away to sentence. Mm. And look, both uh, Travis and Gregory McMichael withdrew their pleas, changed it to not guilty and off to the races on another trial. So Coming that's up. where we're going. So that's what's yeah. that's what's next. Likely to start next week. Wow, interesting. Is yeah. any any other insight on that and what we could expect on that? Even a timeline. Yeah. So um, if the case if the case starts next week, this is going to be a difficult case to get a, an impartial jury. Right. This is going to be a real challenge for defendants, and I think jury selection is going to take a long time for a couple of reasons. Number one, the state court case was so high profile and so right. much publicity and they've been convicted of murder. Right. So you so you have to make sure that you're getting a jury and, and by make sure I mean do your very, very best right. to get a jury who's going to understand that that conviction is not binding on this case. Right. And that <laughs> the elements of the crimes are very, very different in this right. case. What the what the prosecutor is going- is very, mm-hmm. very different. And so whatever happened in that case can't be whatever happened in the state court case can't be influencing outcome in the federal case. So that's part one. Part two is all over the headlines last week. Guilty plea, guilty plea, guilty plea. And you know what a guilty Uh, plea in this case is, Lauren? A guilty plea is not just we're guilty of killing Ahmaud Arbery. A guilty plea is we were motivated by race. By race. Yeah, that's part of the plea. So it's been withdrawn, but I don't know. I think impaneling a jury, yeah, who's going to uh, look? It's 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 going to be difficult because that could most definitely be prejudicial. So right. my feeling is that jury selection. I don't know how long it will take, but I think jury selection is probably going to be. Um, a laborious process with juror questionnaires like we've seen before, which are going to weed out a certain amount of jurors who already have prejudices that are going to become apparent on that. And then it's going to be those interviews with the federal judge, like we've seen play out in other mm-hmm. cases, um, to really, really get a jury that can be fair and impartial in this case. So I think this is going to be a bit more drawn out. Federal cases yeah. usually move a little quicker, but the jury selection process is definitely going, going to, to take their time with this one here. Yeah, yeah. they're, they're going to have to. And I'm sure that um, they're going to be using uh, jury consultants. And, you know, this mm-hmm. is this is the type of case where the stakes are pretty high. So um, 
it's it's going to be one to watch for sure. And Definitely. what I think for those of you who watched the Ahmad Arbery trial or at least followed what happened closely at the state court level, it will mm-hmm. be an interesting analysis um, as to what differs and what evidence comes in that didn't come in at the state court case that's going to be relevant in this case and vice versa. So for trial junkies out there, this is going to be very interesting, um, these nuances that come mm-hmm. out in the federal case. Well, and you're going to be all over it. You're covering every second of it. We will be watching. We'll be talking about it here. Well, all, all of these, both cases, to be actually honest, because yes, there's lots yes, more, to more to come. More to come. All right. Well, Misty is wonderful as always. Thank you so much for breaking all of this down for us. Some big stuff going on right now. Yes. Well, thank you, Lauren. And thank you all for listening. And make sure to tune in next week to The Legal Brief. Thanks so much, everyone.